everyone, welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. It's your friendly host, Lou Rosenfeld, and I'm talking with an old friend who I just got to catch up with first time in a while, Karen McGrain. Hi, Karen. Hi, Lou. It's nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Um, it's it, so kind of interesting circumstances for us to be talking right now, but before we jump into those, uh, if some of you don't know Karen, I, I be surprised, but it's possible. Um, Karen is a consultant who does uh, the, the Lord's work. <laughs> Karen tries to help large organizations uh, deal with uh, messy uh, digital strategy problems. Uh, she's a great person to bring in for a day or two uh, to help untangle and, and do what I, when I used to be involved in this area, I, I actually called information therapy. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Corporate therapy. That's right. Uh, You're doing God's work. Uh, You may know Karen from uh, her books, uh, Content Strategy for Mobile and Going Responsive. She's done incredible uh, contributions to getting organizations to to make their uh, web presences more responsive. Um, And uh, I've actually known Karen going way back to the late 90s she actually uh, spoke at the first Information Architecture Summit in Boston in the year 2000. Uh, we also had her speak at the, uh, at when I and Peter Morgel had Argus Associates back in the day, we, we actually put on an IA conference in La Jolla, California. She spoke there too. And uh, I've been a fan ever since. Now, we were planning on talking uh, today, which is, uh, June, I'm sorry, June, wishful, January 25th, uh, 2019. I think we put this on the calendar like last fall. Yeah, like before Thanksgiving. Oh my God. It just so, uh, it's funny because uh, uh, we're both uh, old school, uh, gray haired information architects. And original, the- original flavor. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, uh, Karen brought up to my attention that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the IA community at the moment? It has been a couple of days, I think. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the people who are trying to do the right thing here. Um, I don't think, Lou, you and I need to get into any of the specifics except to acknowledge stuff's happening. Uh, but I thought, I, I, I obviously couldn't, I don't think I could feel comfortable sitting down and talking to you if I didn't address what I see as like what Me Too is in our community. Um, you know, something started, you know, a hashtag started by a black woman to publicize the idea that women of every shape and stripe are subjected to these sorts of harassing, demeaning, uh, assaulting, abusive behaviors all the time. Uh, I think that our community has really been struggling, Lou, for a number of years. Uh, It's been many years since Christina Woodkey wrote an article in A List Apart about what it meant for this community to call out and deal with serial harassers. And the fact that it's now January 2019 and we're still 
riven as a community, like that this is still sucking away so much of our emotional energy. Uh, you know, my heart goes out to all of the women who are suffering, and I would consider myself to be one of those women. And I think, uh, you know, I want to be here as a voice for everybody who has ever wanted to have a chance in a professional situation to be able to draw a line and say, that is enough. I am not going to stand for that anymore. And for all of the people, all of the women, but, you know, just all of the people who lack the power and support structure of the white male straight cis patriarchy, you know, the man, for everybody who's not the man, uh, or hoping to get shelter from the man, uh, the ability to draw that boundary is very fraught. It's terrifying. Like you don't get to do that. And so you just have to take it, right? Like you've just got to suck it up, let him do it, like rub your butt, whatever, whatever he wants. Worse, right? Much worse. And what I just want to be here with you today, Lou, is a voice for saying, I support all of the women who in our community who have been strong enough to stand up and say, no, we are not going to tolerate this. If you want to kick and scream and drag this out and appeal to the great patriarchal God of the law, do what, it, do what you need to. Like make this as petty and stupid as possible. But we're not going to let go. Like, you know, we're, we're going to keep doing this because we don't stand for it. And I think what would be great to see come out of all of this is open, increased recognition from every basically decent white dude in this community and in, in this industry to be able to stand up and say, oh, wait, I get it a little bit more now and I'm going to support these women and not this one dude who everybody knows is a problem. To talk about this is, uh, I mean, you know, it's very brave. To even bring it up is very brave because there's, it's like you have to, it's not just about bringing it up, it's about sort of crashing through a wall or barrier in order to bring it up. It's not just talking, it's, it's, it's really having to force the conversation forward. And I think you're right. I think uh, a lot of uh, women who, like Christina, like yourself, I think of people like Sarah Walker Fetcher, uh, they, you know, uh, have just been like really having to like invest so much effort and energy to make this conversation happen. And so, um, hats off to you for doing that. That's not an easy thing to do. And it's not like, oh my God, well, we've done that. We brought it up. Now everything's going to be fine. Not at all. As you're saying, it's still an issue. You know, some of these, uh, some of the particulars apparently have been happening for years and years. And I think that's maybe in a way the hardest thing for you to deal with, which is well, why, why, why is, didn't we already get through this? Why is it coming back? Yeah. Um, I think, 
You know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a professional realm in which we all want to believe our interactions take place. You know, we're, we're professionals, we're doing business things, we're, you know, we're engaging in this intellectual life of the mind. And our, you know, like, our disgusting human bodies don't carry along with us when we're having those conversations. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to some extent, we want to talk about the professional strides that women have made. But I think in some of these discussions, uh, the, the harder thing to talk about is women's shame. The, the, the burden that women and people of color and anybody who's marginalized in these public professional settings, the burden that people are carrying around when they're, they are forced to bear some shame of being demeaned, of being treated as though they don't belong, of being treated as though they're an object. Uh, it, it, it's, it's something that you're always expected to bear without ever mentioning it. Like, it's your shame, your private shame. Uh, I, I can speak for myself that I have been carrying around a lot of what I would consider to be very public shame uh, visited upon me by somebody in our community uh, who obviously was personally known to me. And it's been something that's been just extraordinarily painful for me. Disgusting. But also, the shame was entirely mine. And yet, and I knew that if I were to reach out to any person, any man, any white man, in a position of power, who ran an event, uh, who had any leadership in this community, that my concerns about uh, how I was treated would be so utterly devalued uh, that it's like you almost can't even begin to understand the degree to which I knew myself to be unimportant and that none of none of what I had borne was something that a so-called community of people could ever be expected to care about. And that I think is profoundly toxic, that there is a a space in which men, white men, can get away with doing whatever they want and no one can say anything about it. So you see that, I mean, you see that with Brett Kavanaugh, you see that with these kids from Covington Catholic, this Kentucky school that are, you know, screaming racial epithets at a Native American elder, like those kids will never see any consequences for their behavior. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been really struck by uh, people here probably listening will, will know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a, a street in Hamburg in the red light district uh, that basically has signs on either end that say no women allowed. And the expectation is, well, women are not allowed, not allowed in there. And 
it would be your fault if you were to go in there. Mm-hmm. And I've always been so fascinated by that, that that a lawless space like that could exist for a class of people and that it would be accepted, acknowledged to be okay. Uh, now that, you, you know, you, you see that on a sign and it seems so like shocking. Like how could you, how could you say that a, my life out here means something different than my life inside that gate? But it, apparently that sign makes it mean something different. I think there's something that's horrifying about that, but yet there's something that is a a really solid parallel to some of the things that we're seeing uh, that I I want to be able to say to any young woman, any young woman of color who might have what I like to call the information architecture brain, you know, the one, like she's got it in her and she'd be a great IA. I want her to find a community where her life, her body, her, her future is valued to the highest degree. I mean, there shouldn't, her life is valued. Like our community is not some gate that she accidentally passes through where, yeah, there's a, handsy guy who might accidentally grope her and yeah you're just supposed to know that you should stay away from him that's not the kind of community that I want to run and if it means that I blow up the community over my value system that I'm not going to stand for that I am okay with that (laughs) and I'm so you know I feel like this is about what information architecture is well let's talk about the community so this is like a really interesting moment uh, in, in sort of the, the community's formal existence in that, you know, the IA summit has become the IA conference for various somewhat political reasons. The IA foundation was started um, to, to basically manage that conference. And then it, became, right. it moved over to the IA Institute. And um, so, so there's a lot of sort of, change in the air right now and maybe in a way this is good timing to reevaluate what it means for us to be a community and i thought we could maybe talk a little bit about what you'd like to see us as a community consider when we think about what our values are and how we act on those values Uh, i would love to see something really great arise from the ashes of what's happening right now. Uh, but I think it, it, it is going to have to be something new. Uh, the, I, I, what I worry about is not IA conference, IA foundation, whatever, whatever, uh, various Twitter handles and conference names. What I worry about is like the very concept of information architecture sort of getting a bad reputation. Like, oh, those people have a problem in their community. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanna, it's like, uh, you wanna not have something like this expand too much beyond your core community. Like, you wanna, like, we need to fix this before people outside of our immediate sphere start to think, man, those people are a mess. 
Like this is so terrible for the brand of information architecture and I make a living doing it and you make a living doing it. I mean, in some sense, like I don't want people thinking IA is a bad thing. So I, what I would love to see is like, I don't care about at this, at this core moment, like it's not about the legalism of the wording of a particular code of conduct or how a particular like lawsuit is proceeding. None of that is what I mean. I mean, like from the value system of what I want an organization to be, like, what do I want to put my name behind? Mm -hmm. It's something that is as inclusive as it possibly can be meaning it sets as its fundamental goal that it wants people from outside of its core audience to come and learn and feel safe. Uh, I think like the events should have a goal of being as open as possible, like being as like, I think that I think in the past we have done some good things in that area. I think there's lots of good things that could still be done in that area. Uh, I think that like it, it in this particular moment in time, nothing we do isn't political. Like all of this is a political stance. Like we have to stand for racial justice and social justice. We have got to stand for organizations supporting their members and caring about like who gets to have power in an organization. And what I want is for the people to have power in an organization to not just be the same crop of white guys who are in it to protect their own interests. Um, and that, like, I am not in any sense suggesting that the IA Institute, whatever, has been historically run by white guys, but please nobody take, away, take that away. But you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about smashing the patriarchy solely for the benefit of the IA Federation. I'm just talking about smashing the patriarchy as like a good idea in general. Along those lines, one value that I've always held pretty dear um, and, and may have a role in, in, uh, uh, in kind of, you know, basically smashing the, the, the patriarchy, among other things, is to avoid um, as much as possible our community um, accruing a priesthood through the use of jargon and things like certification. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh -huh. Once you get that, what you're doing is you're saying there's a, there is a power structure that decides what is and is not relevant, what is and is not the practice, what is and is not information architecture. And um, uh, who is that hierarchy? How do they get that power? Yep. And, uh, why are they taking the goodness of what we do and masking it? or clouding it in ways that make it inaccessible to people. Yep. And I believe IA is for people. I don't, I've never really, if I did, it's been so long since I cared about the job title IA. I just think it's interesting as an area that, that helps make the world better and it can be put in people's hands. Yeah. I think it's, I, I think for me, I've always been interested in the, it, an expanding understanding of what IA is into groups and people who might not know that they're doing IA or might not know that they'd be good at IA. And, you know, I always love the, uh, the uh, idea of 
some kid really enjoying like labeling their stuff or, you know, sorting or filing their cards or toys or whatever, like, you know, you know, like there's some behaviors that some kids have that I think actually predispose them to looking at the world through an IA lens. And I love the idea of being able to expand that to expand the opportunity to do that as a job to communities of people who might not even know that that's a job that you could get, that you could right. get a company to pay you to do, you could make money for doing that. Uh, I think what, what interests me a lot is like, uh, what happens, I, my friend and colleague Ethan Marcotte uh, gave a talk this past week about unionization and uh, it's a subject that's interesting to me, like this little bit of a non sequitur, but uh, I think that there will come a time very quickly where people working in tech professions, particularly engineering and programming professions, uh, are gonna need to talk about collectivization and unionization. And I think fundamentally for me, I am on the side of the worker, right? Like I am not in the side of big capital. I want like individual people to have power and be able to succeed. And that's what I want for our community is to have it be, yeah, not a priesthood, not an oligarchy, not uh, something that is done in the service of, uh, I guess, terrorizing people into behaving the way <laughs> that you want them to behave. Like this needs to be a community that stands for uh, making people feel safe and secure and valued and that it's open and respectful. And, you know, I would be happy to put all of my best skills in being an open, safe, kind, respectful person to the service of a better IAA, whatever it is. Uh, but I'm not going to put my energy in the service of an organization that seems bound and determined to harbor harassers like i won't do it you know uh, this conversation makes me think about the values of librarianship yeah as stated very concretely for many years by the american library association and i'm sure other uh, other uh, uh groups of librarians around the world and, and the belief in access and empowerment of the individual and the, the, the tearing down of, of barriers. I mean, not all librarians see it that way or, or necessarily act that way, but you know, maybe we should, um, if we really have to have a professional association, maybe it's time to, for us to create a, a American Library Association SIG or something like that. That aside, um, you know, I'm a conference organizer, I'm a book publisher, sometimes I'm a speaker, those are all roles uh, of power. Those, you know, whether I like it or not, um, those are gatekeeper roles. Yep. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about values that the community should have and act on. What do you feel people who are in these different roles of power could be thinking about and could be doing? So I think as a gatekeeper, it's your responsibility to ensure that you are sourcing people, for lack of a better word, from uh, a population that goes beyond your own personal pool. 
to find a more diverse population of people takes work. And that's not something that you should expect other people like people of color to do for you. You should do that work for yourself. So uh, I would, you know, I, I think as a challenge, I would say for book publishers in this industry, what are you doing to get people of color, you know, how, what, how diverse is your roster of authors? How diverse is your roster of speakers? Uh, I think for anybody who's organizing events, I would think, what could you do to be creative about trying to get new voices on the stage, trying to uh, help people, help give people a leg up, basically. Like, is, do, you, do you provide guidance or help to young people that you might provide to somebody outside of your social network who could use your help in getting a conference paper submitted or getting an invitation to a conference or you know, getting a chance to give a five minute talk at a thing? Uh, I think for like looking at books, it would be the same thing. Like, mm -hmm. do you, you know, are you look, are you attracting a population of authors? Are you maybe even thinking about how you compensate authors of color differently? Like I've always thought of it as like, if we're also capitalist that, and it's harder to get somebody who's a person of color to write a tech book, then why don't you pay them more? And you know, maybe you're attracting uh, a new and valued voice to your to your roster of authors. Uh, I think if you're doing an event, uh, I uh, at this point, like the whole idea of having a code of conduct has become so uh, it's it's so far beyond just the sheer legalistic. You know, I totally think of this as like the masculine energy that goes into that document itself. It also really needs the uh, the sensitivity to what that means. Like, are you, do you actually care about creating a space that uh, will be welcoming and supportive to new people? Like, if you were to invite people who were new to the community into that space, do you feel 100% in your heart that you had created a place for them where they would feel safe and if anything creepy happened to them that they didn't feel comfortable about that they would know what they could do about it and they wouldn't have to carry around the feeling of like eh, that was weird and now I feel bad and I guess maybe I just won't ever come back to this event again and it might turn me off on going to conferences over you know entirely because that was awful like or, or, just, or make you want to leave the field altogether entire yeah exactly like I it, if you've never had to carry around a disgusting feeling of shame like that in your heart, it's very hard to understand what that feels like. But I know basically every woman I know has had to carry it around and it sucks and it's horrible. And it's, a, I mean, it's abusive and I don't want that for anybody. You know, um, just thinking about the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of conference production and, um, and publishing. Um, I, so I, I completely agree with conferences. Uh, we were able to have a far more diverse speaker lineup last year at what we were then calling Enterprise UX. Now it's Enterprise Experience. Big difference. Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, and it was 
primarily through going outside uh, our, our own, us, the curators, our, our own networks. And yeah. Intentionally bringing in curators that could extend to other networks. And, and that's just it. You have to delegate um, uh, control of the program. And uh, I, I remember the night before the conference took place, last June, uh, talking with my co-curators and saying, wow, we all kind of acknowledge that we just didn't know many of the speakers. Usually we know them a lot better going in. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a kind of nervous feeling, uh, but it really worked well. And um, I, you know, I'm so glad we did that. Uh, interestingly, on the book publishing side, um, we haven't really gone at it as programmatically and we could certainly do better there. And, uh, I've been having some really great conversations with Heather O'Neill, who, um, has just bravely, you know, con gotten in touch with me and said, I think you can do better and here's some ideas. And so actually that's something we're working on right now. Uh, and I, I, you know, I do think there are some very, you know, look, listen, every, we're smart people. We're all, you know, in the UX world, we're, we're problem solvers. And um, yep. I think part of it is just taking the time and giving it some thought. And it's not necessarily that difficult if you take the time. And I want to just, I want to wrap this up with, with uh, one more point. Um, I, I was someone who in my programming of events and signing authors, I've always believed that um, bringing in people from underrepresented groups is really important because it's the right thing to do. And that's true, but I, I, a couple people really brought me around to understanding that it goes further than that. Uh, after years of Whitney Cuisenberry and Laura Klein patiently explaining to me that the outcome, the product, is yeah. improved when it reflects not only uh, the diversity of the group of people that made it, designed it, spoke on it, wrote it, but also the diversity of people consuming it. That, you know, so there's a, there's a business argument here, and it, that may sound cold, but there's truth to that. And sometimes it's really important, I think, for all of us to remember just like when we used to talk about accessibility, there, it, you know, accessibility first, as a Whitney Cuisenberry and Sarah Horton's book uh, that really made the case that, hey, it, it's not, you, you don't just do this because it's the right thing to do or it's legally mandated. There's, there's like a business case to be made for doing the right thing in many cases. And let's not forget that. So I don't want to diminish the importance of acting on values, but also I think some of us need to hear different arguments to support the same position. I think that is absolutely true. There are some people who may not be swayed by it's the right thing to do argument that might be swayed by the it'll help you make more money argument. And great. So, yeah, I think it comes down to integrity, right? I mean, whether you're putting on a conference, yep. whatever you're doing in our field, you, you want there to be the integrity of the process and, and of the outcome. And um, I don't know, I, I think that this is a good moment for us to be thinking about 
this type of integrity and creating, whether it's creating a product or creating a space where people feel comfortable and aren't subjected to feeling shame and humiliation, that's, that's something we all can do. Yeah. What are you, what are you going to do differently? Well, um, on the publication side, we have a really collaborative process right now. Mm -hmm. Extremely supportive of our authors. Um, and I think we can actually, both in the acquisition side and the uh, developmental side, once an author is signed, there are ways of involving uh, people from some of these underrepresented communities to help uh, both acquisitions and development. And the develop on the developmental side, it, it's not just like helping authors uh, from diverse groups, but um, Th those same uh, editorial people uh, can support the, the white males too, right? I mean, because there, there's benefit in everyone involved in the, in the, in the process of creating a book and, and pulling together ideas to, to have those ideas um, interacted with and improved by a diverse group of people. So that's, that's a direction we're heading in right now editorially. And, um, I'm really excited by that, but it's, it's going to be a process and uh, I'm sure it's going to need to be tweaked and need to be tuned, but it is something that I'm looking forward to putting in place and in, in 2019. And I think uh, you're going to be one of those people I, I bounce it off of. I hope that's okay. Sure. Absolutely. Karen, I, I, we could go on and uh, I, I wish we had more time and, and uh, I wish we wouldn't wait for years to have these conversations. <laughs> this has been really great. I want to thank you um, because this is really hard. And uh, as we touched on early on, it takes a lot of bravery to, to step forward. And when there's no door, you have to kind of break down the wall and uh, people like you've been doing that and, and it is appreciated. I want to ask you before we uh, wrap, if there's anyone or anything that you think listeners should know about, anyone you want to suggest that I have on a future podcast or articles. Yeah. Uh, so if people in your audience are not familiar with uh, Dr. Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, the subtitle is How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Uh, she'd be a phenomenal guest for your podcast. I don't know if, if she, she has time to do a podcast. Uh, her scholarship, I think, is amazing in looking at how algorithms and how human behavior in interacting with a so-called uh, unbiased algorithm uh, actually starts to reinforce our racial biases. Uh, I think it's uh, an astonishing piece of scholarship. Uh, I think it's been actually in the news the last couple of days. I saw some lawmaker was tweeting out about algorithms not being racist. And it's like, yeah, no, algorithms are racist. You know why they are? Because people are racist. So I, if people are not familiar with her work, I wish that they would be. Can you repeat her name? Yes, her name is Dr. Sophia Noble. It's S-A-F-I-Y-A-N-O-B-L-E. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's so funny you mention it because uh, I, I saw this really great thread on Twitter a couple days ago, a different one where some commentator was uh, 
uh, trying to take down Alexandria Ocasio um, uh, AOC. What's her last name? Cortez? Uh, AOC, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and because uh, she was basically making that case that algorithms are are, are uh, often racist. And uh, the commentator was like, well, she doesn't even understand that algorithms are just math. <laughs> and someone brought up uh, this book that you're mentioning in that context, but it was a really interesting discussion. And uh, um, I guess there's a lot of learning happening, uh, even on Twitter. So <laughs> Karen, thanks again for joining us. Uh, uh, great to talk with you. Uh, if you wanna know more about Karen, all the great work she's doing and has done and has written in the past. Her website, Karen McGrain, that's Karen, K-A-R-E-N, McGrain, M-C-G-R-A-N-E.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.